Welcome to the Opera Biz Podcast, uncut and unfiltered, where we hang out with opera professionals and talk about life inside the industry. I'm your host, Daniel Welch. If there are any problems, all I can suggest is to switch it off and switch it back on again. That's, that's, <laughs> that's, much that's the extent of your, uh, <laughs> your IT knowledge. There's a, there's, a, um, there's a children's TV series in the UK, I don't know whether it made it over here, called Peppa Pig. Yes. Yeah. And um, I don't know whether it got turned into an American version over here. No, it's, it's still it's UK still, version. It's still yeah. a UK version. Yeah. But Daddy Pig, whenever Daddy Pig is asked to fix, fix something, all he does is he switches it off and switches it back on again. And so I come from the Daddy Pig school of technology. Switch it off, switch it off. Exactly. If it doesn't work, then call somebody. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who has a small child, and they, um, they were discussing the fact that you have to be really careful about what you watch on YouTube these days oh, yeah. because their, their kid likes to watch Peppa Pig. But apparently somebody has been taking, has been making knockoff Peppa Pig episodes oh, no. that are like seriously violent and just raunchy. And so mm -hmm. if you search Peppa Pig on YouTube, you end up getting like 75% real content and 25% atrocious content. <laughs> But that's, but that's, <coughs> like, and that's the internet an for you. An education. <laughs> <laughs> my, uh, my nephew is three and he watches Peppa Pig. Yeah. So, yeah. It's cool. Yeah. Uh, we were watching, uh, we did vacation with them not too long ago and he was watching um, this Irish uh, cartoon about puffins. And it's the episodes are like seven minutes long. <laughs> like, this perfect. It's perfect for a three year old. <laughs> get, get baked, watch them. <laughs> It's fantastic. It's like watching Pingu. It's hard to uh, get baked with a three-year-old around. Yeah, no, well, I suppose not. Yeah, probably uh, probably not the best thing. Um, yeah, so uh, welcome to the Opera Biz podcast. Uh, appreciate you sitting in. Uh, for those who um, don't know, Chris and I met uh, last season during uh, Cozy. It's a, a fantastic Thirsty cast. Thursday. A thirsty Thursday, which is kind of an insider uh, Met singer thing, um, but uh, I'm pretty stoked for Marnie, which is has this massive cast, yeah. And uh, I know quite a bit of people in that cast, and I'm really looking forward to that. You said you've got dress rehearsal tomorrow. Premieres uh, premieres on the twentieth. Uh, premieres on the nineteenth. Nineteenth, okay. On the nineteenth, yeah. So uh, dress rehearsal tomorrow, which is Tuesday, and then we have two blissful days off. Um, of doing nothing Just nice to at all, and then and then we hopefully hit the ground running on on Friday, which I think, I think, is going to be uh, it's going to be a good thing. Yeah. I think I have quiet confidence about this one being a little bit of a hit. Mm. Rehearsal schedule has been pretty rigorous for this, hasn't it? Yeah, it's been a, a long one, but I mean that's usual yeah. for a new production. That's um, true. That's true. So we kind of had five solid weeks um, plus. Yeah, five solid weeks of rehearsal, and then um, the final week, uh, which is the run-up to the, the first night, and we have a dress rehearsal in there. But it's incredible, because you, you get to the beginning of a rehearsal period like that, you know, first day of school, everybody's there, um, all dressed up, trying to make an impression, and um, you think, oh my God, this is going to stretch on forever, and uh, on certain days at certain times of the day it does seem like it's stretching on forever but then blink of an eye later all of a sudden you're on the stage and then as soon as you hit the stage you see you go down to one rehearsal a day and then as the orchestra feeds in those rehearsals thin out mm -hmm. and then there's these sort of vast deserts of space 
between, I mean, our, our last rehearsal was last Friday for the piano dress rehearsal. So then we had Saturday, Sunday, Monday, mm. Tuesday rehearsal, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So we do the whole thing then three times in what, uh, a week. Yeah. Which is not that unlike an actual performance schedule, which I suppose it no, kind of weans not. down to that. So you're But once you've got the production up and running, um, there's a sort of inherent momentum to the piece. Yeah. Um, but when, when, especially with a piece like this, which is, which is tough, it's tough to sing, it's tough to learn, it's tough to be in the right place at the right time musically. I mean, it's a fan, I think it's fantastically cinematic, the music, but um, it does require quite a lot of concentration. And then when all of a sudden the rug is pulled out from under you, under you and you <laughs> said, well, you go home for three days now and do nothing, <laughs> you think, oh, God, I'd really like a couple more rehearsals. Um, I don't, this kind of stuff I don't think can be too rehearsed. Yeah. Um, but you know, what are the, the specific challenges with this, with this score itself? Um, as I said, it's, it's very cinematic and it's sort of a bit impressionistic mm -hmm. um, in its in its musical style there are there are sometimes these big sort of washes of of orchestral color and that comes with very little pulse so when we've been doing it with the uh with with the piano of course because the piano is such a percussive instrument yeah. no matter what's happening there's always a little you can always pick up a, a beat somewhere in the bar yeah as soon as we got with the orchestra <laughs> I was just thinking, well, it's like being in a snowstorm. Woohoo! <laughs> yeah, tell me which way is north, please. And that's really where the conductor comes in. <laughs> Absolutely. Productor and also um, Karen Levine, our, our fantastic prompter. Yes. She yes, yes. is working overtime, I can tell you. <laughs> I mean, uh, Robert Spano is a fantastic conductor. Robert is great. He really knows this piece inside out. He's incredibly clear, incredibly reliable. But... He's got his own fires to fight oh, for sure. in the orchestra, and it's a difficult piece for the orchestra too, so he, his attention is of necessity focused on the orchestra. Karen, however, is our little friend down there in, <laughs> in the box, and so if, if any of you spot in performances, um, or uh, especially on the HD, I'm so worried about it, of, of our eyes darting to the left or <laughs> darting a little bit downstage center in the middle of a, of a tremendously committed, well-acted scene, then you know who we're looking at. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, it's a necessity with a, a show like this. Um, the nice thing about the HD broadcast is at least you've got multi-camera, so. <laughs> yeah, they can cut away. <laughs> they can, like, cut away, he's looking too much, right. cut away. <laughs> no, go to the one who looks good. Do you know when the HD broadcast is for this? It's the final show, which is oh. November 10th. So they're giving you plenty of time to... To get it wrong to get again. <laughs> <laughs> to work ourselves, you how know, many, all the way back to the beginning. How many shows are in this run? Uh, only seven. Okay. Which is a little unusual for a, for a new production. But, um, hey, uh, Modern Opera isn't a surefire hit. Right, 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 right. However, I have a feeling tickets are going to be hard to come by by the end of this run. Nice. I'm already, uh, I'll be there on the 27th for sure. Um, I'm out of town this weekend. I'm actually doing a, uh, a Finger Lakes fall foliage motorcycle trip with my dad this afternoon. Ah, why are you making me jealous? <laughs> well, I, I say that now, but I've been looking at the weather up there. It's actually supposed to rain oh. almost the whole time. So it's, I may end up just 
going up and hanging out with my parents instead. But uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> but look, if or, you, or donning the rain gear and saying, fuck it, I'm doing it either way. <laughs> if I can give you a story of hope. Um, in May, I was in Munich. And Munich is, um, for those of you who don't know, I am also a biker. I'm a bit of a motorcycle nut. It's a relatively recent thing for me, but we'll probably get back to that later. But um, me and my girlfriend both ride. And um, I was in... Uh, I was in Munich, as I said, and there's a great BMW dealership there that hires out bikes, and we get great bikes, and they look after us really well. And we had um, three days, and we thought, this time we're going to get a big trip. We're going to go all the way down through Austria into the north of Italy, the Dolomites, you know, this incredible, incredible area. And of course, (laughs) the closer we got to the weekend, the worse the weather (laughs) forecast got. And we were thinking, oh, shit. You know, because it's a, for those of you who haven't hired bikes or those of you who don't know, um, hiring a motorbike is not quite like hiring a car. It's a little bit more expensive. And um, you don't just hire a bike to go from A to B. You hire a bike for the pleasure of being on the bike. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we set out on day one and um, I had some waterproof gear. My girlfriend didn't. She was all in leathers. <laughs> you could wring us out like sponges. <laughs> By the time we arrived at our first stop that night, we drove down to this great hotel, and we just <laughs> we walked in like the uh, even though theoretically my gear was waterproof. Yeah, yeah, it was all filled with water. I mean, you could squeeze her boots, and they would just oh yeah gush. And um, so the next morning we thought, oh god, are we really gonna do this all the way? And the next morning, again, it was raining, it was cold, it wasn't great. It was kind of May time, so the weather can be a bit dodgy up in the mountains. And we hit this tunnel. And this tunnel took us from one side of a mountain range to the next. It was a long tunnel, like three miles. And we were in it, and of course you get inside the tunnel, and you're wet. And there's no sunshine in the tunnel (laughs) at all, and it's cold. (laughs) And you're thinking, oh, no, 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 no. And then, like a little... Uh, you know, sort of like the the theoretical emergence into the afterlife <laughs> was this incredible bright sunlight at the other end. We came out and this warm breeze washed over us. <laughs> we drove down into this, rode down into this valley and it was full sunshine and stayed warm for the next two days. Perfect. And beautiful. So Italy was bathing in sunshine. Literally, we came through into Italy bathing in sunshine Austria, raining like a bitch. <laughs> and so there's always that, that possibility of redemption. So yeah. I would just get on the bike anyway. Do it either way. I mean, their mountains are notorious for, you know, keeping a, a weather pattern stuck on one side and the other side being free. But uh, I, I've done a little bit in the Rockies and same, same kind of thing, yeah. you know. Riding, riding mountains is, is awesome. I'm not anywhere near Cold is the word you're looking for. That is accurate. That is accurate. I think the uh, the coldest trip I ever did was uh, I did Rochester, New York, which is where my parents are, uh, back to Kansas City where I was living. Yeah. And it's, you know, 1,100, 1,200 miles. Did it in a couple of days. Did it in two days. But uh, it started raining in southern Ohio. So I basically had to do Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Missouri, about 600-ish miles in the rain. Oh, 
and I have never been so cold in my entire life. Now, I mean, I, like I grew up in an area where it was normal to have feet of snow during the winter. <laughs> and I'd play outside for hours and hours. Like that's one thing. But like, even in head to toe rain gear, no. that when that rain is coming down, it just it perm the temperature permeates. Even if Absolutely. you're relatively dry, and the also, temperature you can't get away from it. And also after, you know. 20 miles of you thinking, ah, I'm great. My waterproof gear is great. <laughs> the water just finds its way down your neck, up your sleeves, it's always around. The There's always, always just one little place where it gets in. No, no, no waterproof gear is, is, is waterproof. You're not wearing a hazmat suit. You no, know, it's like this. It's true. This seems there's. So one of the places I'm dying to ride uh, is New Zealand. Yeah. Um, my, my brother was, um, was down there to shear sheep and do some work with a sailing company as you do as you do because that's you know New Zealand's all about the sheep um, and he was down there for a while he was gonna be down there for months <clears throat> so I said I got some time free I've always been dying to go to New Zealand <clears throat> and he's you know he had a car while he was there so I was like well, why don't I come down and kick it for a couple weeks and uh, we were down there riding and my, my brother rides as well but we were in we're just driving the car and some phenomenal vistas and these guys would zoom by on the on their beamers and I'm like man that's that's what I want, but I had not budgeted. Like you said, hiring out a bike is not a cheap endeavor. No. And I had not budgeted to, uh, to grab, and the only bikes that you could get down there were, were BMWs and like all leader bikes. And I was like, that's what I would want to ride anyway. <clears throat> but renting one was definitely outside my budget. But I was watching these yeah. guys ride and I'm like, you've got these great sweeping turns into some really tight corners and just views that are yeah. spectacular. So one really of these days, it. I need to go back and, and ride New Zealand. But where's your favorite place you've ever ridden? Um, I, th I think actually that that trip that we did uh, down into the Dolomites was was quite spectacular. We came over a mountain pass at um, around 2,200 meters. So what's that? Uh, no, 9,000. It's what? <laughs> it's something like 7,000 feet. Yeah. Um, seven, perhaps 8,000 feet. And it was absolutely stunning and we got to the top and there was a little one track switchback road going down into Italy and there was still snow up by this still semi-frozen lake and days like that when you're on your bike and you can just feel the air changing around you you can smell when you're going through the pine forests you can smell everything it's just you know, you smell the snow when, you, when you're riding mm -hmm. along. It's just, you're so in touch with everything. And, um, and that's what I really love about it. It's so all-consuming. There's no room for anything really else yeah. on a bike than riding. Yeah. And um, it's a bit of sort of moving zen. Absolutely. My friend Chris, uh, Chris Carr is a tenor. He's a young tenor here in town. Um, he and I have known each other since grad school. And he just bought, I think, a Ninja 600. Um, mid 2000s and it's his first bike and uh he sent me a picture from up in peak's kill i think yesterday or two days ago and uh I, I was like welcome welcome to the family man you see why we're cultish about this he's like now i have this freedom that i can like get out of the city and zoom around and do whatever he's like but there's nothing like being out there and i was like yeah man it's it's a whole new world that unless you ride we could we could just do an entire podcast yeah, we, with motorcycles so we'll get off it, but um, yeah. when i Basically, I was learning because my girlfriend is a biker of 20 years, and uh, and I it was always an unfulfilled dream in me. And um, then when we got together, she said, "Do you ride motorbikes?" And I said, "No, but I'd love to." And so she said, 
or get your license. So I did. Three months later, I had my license. And in the two and a bit years, two and a half, almost three years now, actually, since I got my license, I have raced BMWs. I've raced uh, Ducati Panigales. Um, I've ridden in some of the most beautiful country in the world. I've ridden the Angeles Crest Highway. Um, I've rode a Yamaha R1 out into the Mojave Desert. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 been a wild ride, but it's been an informative one as well because, uh, like I say, especially the track riding um, is really teaches you a thing or two about commitment. Mm, mm-hmm. And there's no room to second guess yourself at yeah. all. You just have to commit to what you're doing. That is so like singing. It's so like performance of, of all kinds. That there's you you have to if I mean singing beyond your ability is like riding the bike beyond your ability. Mm-hmm. If you try and sing too loud, if you try and do this, if you try and do that, if everything becomes trying, the bike doesn't go fast. Right. And the bike is trying to buck you off the whole way <laughs> because it hates you. Yeah. And if you manhandle your voice, it's exactly the same thing. Yeah. Person handle your voice. Let's let's, let's put it out there. Yeah. But if you if you try and bully your voice into doing something, it won't go there. Right. It's all about that kind of 70% rule for me, 70 to 75%. Yeah. If you feel like you're pushing on a bike or with your voice at 80% plus, yeah. it's the law of diminishing returns. Yeah. You're not going any faster. You're not making any more sound. Absolutely. And the, the times on the track when I felt um, the quietest, the calmest, the most secure have been the times when I put in my quickest laps. Yeah. The bike's happy. I'm happy. I'm not asking it to do anything beyond my ability. It knows that I'm in control. It knows that I'm calm. And it's the same with singing. If it's all calm, if it's all just flowing, that's when you put in your best performances. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I love bikes for that reason as well because it's, there's, there are so many similarities. And it's a, it, it's a really, not that I'm a very spiritual person. Uh, no, I'm going to qualify that. I'm not a spiritual person in the slightest. (laughs) But for want of a better word, it is a kind of spiritual experience. It's it's getting in touch with yourself. And it's, and when you're on, the the difference between a bike and and singing is that um, if you're on a track with a bike, if you make a mistake, you can die. Hmm. (laughs) Fairly much. And that is also something to take back to the stage and take back to performance. If you make a mistake, nobody ends up dead. That's true. You know? <laughs> well, unless you're know. rolling into the pit, your but yeah. Singing teacher or your partner or your significant other, the conductor might get it. Let's see. But yeah, yeah. No, that's true. But you know, this 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 brings us this back around. You know, what what started you singing? Where did I mean? Where did opera come in? Was that well, was that something you started early on? No, no, really, really late? not at all. It was a combination of um, a kind of high school uh, pop band and mm-hmm. a girl. <laughs> I mean, always a good motivator. Yeah, uh, I was the kind of science geek um, at school, and. Um, I was always pointed towards my degree ended up being in biochemistry um, 
because I really wasn't involved in, in music at all. Neither was my family in any way, although my dad kind of liked opera. My mum was tolerant of classical music and has now come to love it. But um, I was about 14, 15 years old and I got into this band with my mates in a tiny 12,000 person market town in the middle of nowhere in rural Lincolnshire. And as is only possible in towns like that, I played nothing, didn't sing, but still ended up in a band. <laughs> so I wasn't entirely sure what I was doing in there, but it sounded like a great idea to me. And we wanted to get, um, we put this, uh, this song together. And there was one of the kids in the band who was quite good with keyboards and music. And he actually went on to write um, uh, music for um, uh, computer games. Oh, nice. And <coughs> so we, there were two singers, me and this guy called Simon and this other guy called Nathan McCree. Um, and uh, they were both singing in the, um, in the local church choir. And so we thought, okay, if I go and join the local church choir as well, then we'll be able to get a gig in the church choir concert, which happened every year. But it was a really traditional, I mean, the, the church is from like the 13th century. It's this beautiful Norman church um, and has a proper traditional English um, church choir with boys, boy trebles, male altos, all the rest of it. So there we were, we joined the, the church choir and I sang my single, our single, in the, in the um, talent half of the church choir concert. So you guys were doing originals, not covers? Oh yeah, yeah. we wrote our own songs. Okay, okay. And um, <laughs> I say that, uh, Nathan wrote our songs. <laughs> and um, after the summer break, I went back to the choir because I actually really enjoyed it. And I loved the music. I wasn't particularly religious, still aren't at all. Um, in fact, completely the opposite. But I, I just I loved the communal music making, and also at the age of fifteen, um, we used to go to the pub over the road um, after choir practice on a Tuesday night. So we'd go and have a pint in the in the pub with all the the men from the choir because I was singing bass at that stage, and um, then. To kind of fire my interest further, the the choir master of the choir was also the my school music teacher, and he said, "Look, why it was a small town? Yeah, <laughs> why don't you get involved in the school shows?" And I thought, "Okay," because they did a a musical mm. every year in the school, in the local amateur dramatic theatre, and there was a girl there called Inga Inga Davis who was a kind of musical prodigy. They even made a TV program about her in England. And she was a uh, fantastic violinist and a pianist. And we got together as boyfriend and girlfriend. She would play and I would sing. And we would go through all these books of show tunes and I would learn, you know, Kismet and Kiss Me Kate and uh, the Desert Song. And yeah, I went through absolutely everything. We just went through album after album after album and... and you know, kind of got together because there were fringe benefits. Right, of course. And um, <coughs> I, I loved the singing. I loved the music. And uh, 
the choir master also put me in touch with a singing teacher who happened to be a professor of singing at the Royal Academy of Music in London. And he said, look, I'll teach you. But at that stage, um, we had no money whatsoever. So he said, in that case, I'll teach you free. <laughs> so he, he taught me from when I was 16 years old, a wonderful guy called Mark Wildman, who um, was for a long time uh, the head of vocal studies at the Royal Academy of Music in London. And, um, and that was kind of it, really. I was bitten by the bug. I loved performing. Mm. I did the Pirates of Penzance. I did the Mikado. We put on Daido and Aeneas at school as well. I went to university to read biochemistry because I had no academic qualification in music whatsoever, and I could barely read music. Um, but I was the president of the Gilbert and Sullivan Society at university. We put on all kinds of stuff little shop of horrors a crazy show called blondel that nobody knows um loads of gilbert and sullivan all kinds of stuff um and i just had a great time singing i was in the university chamber choir etc 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 i was offered my phd at the end of my undergraduate degree and i thought well what do i want to do do i want to sing or do i want to be a scientist and uh, and I just wanted to sing. That's all I wanted to do. And so, age 21, I got a um, a place at the Royal Academy of Music in London. Studied there for four years and came out at 25 and have worked ever since. I mean, that's it, <coughs> in a nutshell. <coughs> well, not in a nutshell, in a very big nutshell. Was there a transition <coughs> from uh, academia to, to the professional world, or did it, did it kind of happen... Seamlessly. I mean, England works a little bit different than we than yeah. the states in, the, in that it did. realm. Uh, it did. It, it was... I was extremely lucky. Um, I was in favour at the Royal Academy of Music. So every weekend... But I had to, because I had no money. Yeah. Um, I was working. And if I wasn't um, singing, I was doing something else. But little by little, every weekend, I would have some choral society gig earning 150 quid yeah um doing the messiah or or elijah or you know whatever i did right. i did hundreds of oratorios <laughs> um for all of these little choral societies up and down the country and recitals as well and um i first sang opera um professionally for mid wales opera which is a tiny tiny company i don't even know if it's still going um, and I sang Marcello in La Boheme, um, and that was 93, 94. And little by little, I got um, opportunities and covers at Welsh National Opera. And by the time I'd, I'd left um, college, or d- by the time I left the Royal Academy of Music in, in, two, in my God, I was going to say 2005, it's 1995. <laughs> In 1995, 23 years ago, I'd already really been working for a season. Yeah. And I walked straight into um, covers and small roles at mm. Welsh National Opera. Nice. Which at that stage was headed by Anthony Freud, who's now, uh, where is he, Dallas? Houston? Yeah. No, 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 he's not. He's in Chicago. <coughs> he's in yes. Chicago now. Yes, 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 yes. Um, so, uh, also then I had a very good manager um uh, and friend who sadly um uh passed away at the beginning of this year robert rattray um who was the uh, assistant general director of the met up until um his very untimely demise uh and that was at askenas lisa askenas then now askenas holt 
And I was really lucky to come across the path of um, Graham Johnson, the great um, pianist, leader accompanist, academic, has forgotten more about Schubert, Schumann, and every single other song composer than I will ever know. And he kind of took me under his wing and um, after he'd heard me in a competition and phoned me up the next day and said, you won the competition, but that's not important. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> I said, well, what is important? He said, who manages you? And I was managed by a, a small agency at that stage. And he said, no, he said, that's not good enough. And I was 25 years old and I thought, well, I don't know, I've made a commitment to that agency. <laughs> Surely that's good enough. And um, he said, no, who manages you is unbelievably important. And at that stage, Robert Rattray was the, the singer's agent in the UK. And I went and met with him and he took me on. And that was it. I mean, I never looked back. I was always working. Mm -hmm. Um, were you picky about what you sang or was it just whatever came across you no, went I after? No, I, di I didn't have a choice about it. Yeah. There's no such thing as being picky where I come from. Um, as I say, uh, you know, I didn't come from a wealthy family at all. Uh, I think I inherited 500 quid from my grandma when she died. Uh, that's pretty much the only money anybody's ever given <laughs> me in my entire life. Um, apart from, I have to say, I was lucky enough to win a lot of support through competitions yeah. and things whilst I was at, at college. Um, so I got bursaries and, uh, you know, and, and scholarships and all the rest of it. And I won my fair share of prizes as well. Um, but I had no independent wealth whatsoever. I had yeah. to earn it, everything. I had to make my living. And um, <coughs> I had an interview in... in uh, in Vienna, when I was singing Arabella there a year or so ago, and this interviewer who was, in, you know, incredibly knowledgeable about opera and everything said, "Oh my God, you've had such a, a wonderfully interesting artistic career. You've sung so many different things. You know, I mean, this must have been such a an incredible artistic plan for you." And I said, <laughs> "There was nothing artistic about it at all. I had bills to pay. I had to eat." Yeah. I had to drink, for God's sake. I mean, I needed a beer occasionally. So um, I learned to sink or swim yeah. pretty quickly yeah. because I had all kinds of things thrown at me. Now, my manager was very astute. Um, he steered me away from things that perhaps would have wrecked me, but he also threw things at me that I didn't think I could possibly do. And I remember auditioning to sing um, uh, Orpheus in um, the, uh, the Monteverdi Orfeo. Oh, uh, okay, the Pocente yeah. Spirito. And I had to, to learn it and go and sing it for Rene Jacobs, who's a very famous um, Baroque conductor. And I just thought, what am I doing? I have no <laughs> idea how to sing this crap. Not crap. It's beautiful music, but I, I wasn't built for it. I just, I really wasn't. And um, <laughs> these sort of raised eyebrows at the audition. And uh, needless to say, I didn't get the role. But he did give me some other work. But I had to turn my hand to everything from Monteverdi, which I recorded to Monteverdi, all the way through to Thomas Atlas, you know, absolutely contemporary music. But there was little plan in that. Mm. It was just making a career. You know, I ask that because in the <coughs> States we have this obsession with 
sing only what's exactly right for your voice. And, you know, we put the, we put the, the fuck in this very specific box and, you know, young singers are, are like, well, do I, somebody offered me this. Should I, should I sing this? Should I ignore it? Because this isn't what I think of my, where my voice is going and that kind of thing. And my international friends don't seem to have ever even talked about that. Like it's just a, a gig comes along. It's, it, it fits what you can sing. You sing the gig, you move on to the next thing. Yeah. And, uh, and here it's, it's, well, you know, I know I'm a mezzo, but I don't think I'm a Carmen mezzo. You know, I think. Well, I, I, I just, I wish I'd had the luxury to say that. Like I say. But, you, it, but, but a lot of these friends that I hear saying this are flat broke. Yeah. And they're, they're not making any money doing, you know, they, they have three other jobs that aren't singing. Do you know what? You, you will learn a shit ton more doing a job mm. that you're not quite suited to. Amen than, to that. Than sitting on your ass. And and um, and saying it's not right for me. Yeah. I mean, I learned so much. I learned about bad singing. I learned about good singing. I learned to survive vocally. And I just say it's it's really educational to learn about to inwardly educational to learn about your voice and what you personally right. are capable of doing. Right. And I think if you can keep working, then even if it's not quite the right gig for you, even if it's not quite the right thing. Like I say, you'll learn a lot about yourself. You'll learn a lot about what your voice can do, what it can't, but also you're just cranking the handle, yeah. you know, like the, the organ grinder. Yeah. And I learned how to, to, um, to learn music because I had so much music to learn. Yeah. I was doing 15, 20 recitals a year. I was doing all these little gigs for no, 20 recitals, for, damn. For no, for no, I mean, for no money. Yeah. But, but it, it gets you out there. Right. It gets you and known. I was always learning new repertoire, learning new songs. I would say, oh God, I mean, I must have recorded 500 songs. Mm. Um, and at any given time, I would say I have almost a thousand songs in from memory. Damn. Just because I've done so many. I've yeah. done so much. And because I didn't read music, I had to really learn everything. I had to learn everything by ear. I had to just memorize it. Yeah. I never, well, never. I very, 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 very rarely ever gave a recital where I hadn't memorized everything. Mm -hmm. And once I've memorized things, they stick in there. Somebody was talking about um, the Schumann Liederkreis, um, the Opus 39, which I've only ever sung once in my life, which of course was at Wigmore Hall. You know? <laughs> I remember memorizing it and thinking, oh my God. But um, that was about 15 years ago. And they were talking about this song, Zwielich. And the text just went across my, yeah. across my, my sort of you know, mind's eye. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm really lucky in that way. Once, once I've really, really worked something, it's there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty much there, there forever. I'm working with uh, one of my regular clients is uh, Jessica Sandage, who's covering in Marnie. Right. Um, and she's working on uh, Norma right now for New Jersey. And the performance is not too far from now. Um, and I mean, that's just a beast of a role. I mean, oh, it's yeah. just fucking huge. <laughs> but we were, we were talking about it. Like, but, but the point of doing it now at a smaller house with a, a, very, a limited run is that you learned it, you memorized it, you performed it. Yeah. It's there, it's in your brain. So that when you get a call for the potential to sing that for something with a, a bigger run at a bigger house for a 
shit ton of money. It's already there. You can just recall it and, you know, and you're good to go. Yeah. Um, that right there is, I think, one of those really big things about singing as much as you possibly can. Because like, I, know, I know people that are looking at resumes and they're like, well, I just, you know, I'm basically, I'm trying to count how many roles you've done. Because then there's more opportunity to have, to pull you for something that we're doing because, oh, you've already sung that, you've already sung this, you've already sung that. Or you've already yeah. learned it, or, you know, it's at least in Absolutely. your brain. Um, look, it, it, in a certain, to a certain extent, it did come back to sort of bite me in the ass a little. Because um, if you are successful as a square peg mm. or a triangular peg mm. or a circular peg, when people are planning their seasons, they say, aha, we need a triangular peg for this role. We need a circular peg for this role. Hang on, we've got an octagonal peg left over. Who can do that? Maltman. <laughs> so the, the, the downside, I suppose, of being a jack of all trades and master of none is that, yes, you are versatile, but um, it means that you're... Perhaps uh, I think an afterthought is too strong, but you are you become a useful singer who can mm. mop up roles in a season mm -hmm. rather than somebody who is season. I mean, this is obviously assuming a kind of level of career, uh, which and uh, I've been really fortunate to achieve what I have. Fortune uh, allied with endless hours of hard work, right. self exploration, um, self criticism. And 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 just simply trying to get better. Mm -hmm. um, the process never stops. You never the finished article. You just have to keep going. And so, in the past few years, when I wanted then to switch to a certain kind of repertoire, I wanted to start focusing on the Italian repertoire more. I was met with blank looks from all the casting directors, <laughs> who are who are mostly let's call them kindly. Let's call them creatures of habit. Yes. Um, they are very comfortable casting somebody in a role that other people have cast them in. When it comes to independent thought and really placing um, their faith in people and thinking, actually, I hear the potential to do something else here, original thought is not high on the list because they have a season to fill. I understand that. But then occasionally you come across people with um, real vision and I've been lucky enough to... Uh, to come across a few of those and also I just thought you know I have to change minds myself I mm -hmm. don't expect mm -hmm. people to believe that I can sing the repertoire that I say that I'm going to sing you know it's just me I'm a singer I'm mouthing off right right, right, right. Um, so I called or emailed all of the most high profile prominent uh, conductors that I knew that I'd worked with, people like Tony Papano, Daniel Harding, Franz Felser Merst, um, to name a few, and I set up sessions with them. And I just said, look, I want you to tell me why I can't sing this repertoire. Interesting. I like that. That's a ballsy move, but it's a, and it's a I, great move. And I went and I had working sessions with all of them, and they said, actually, there's no reason why you can't sing this repertoire. You know, it's not the finished article, and I never expected it to be. But then um, I had a few opportunities. I sang my first Don Carlo in um, 2012. I was 42 years old then. Um, then uh, a fantastic guy in Frankfurt called Bent Loeber, he took pity on me or saw some potential 
He offered me more Don Carlos. He offered me Bocanegra. He offered me um, uh, Beppe Sicilien, which I just sang there last season. I'm singing a new production of Forza there this season as well, this coming season. And um, then, fortunately, the bolt from the blue happened, meeting my partner, my love, um, Audrey Saint-Gilles. And uh, speaking of, why isn't she here today? Uh, she's she's working. She's she's <laughs> actually she back in Philly? she's giving much of her knowledge to <laughs> other people today. I suppose that's allowed. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm not so sure about that. I want to keep it for myself. And um, she, it, it was it was interesting because she liked the way I sang, but then when we got closer and closer and closer, she basically said to me, "Look." you sing well but you can sing better <laughs> which is <laughs> which is typically honest from her because she's french and she just doesn't care no pulling punches no absolutely not and she cares about it so deeply that for her it's like a pain yeah in her heart if she hears somebody singing in a way that's not right and her great love is the italian repertoire so we started working together and she became my singing teacher vocal coach, singing teacher, and um, we started to turn things around and we work every single role now. Awesome. Every single role, she gives me notes. She even invented this um, this alter ego called Evangelina who sends me notes <laughs> because it became so contentious at times because we're both quite fiery personalities. Yeah, yeah. I hated being told that I'd done something that wasn't quite right, even though I knew it was right. And so we invented Evangelina, who now sent, she said, it wasn't me. It was <laughs> Evangelina says, and I get even text messages from Evangelina. And um, why Evangelina? I have no idea. Please do not deconstruct that one. But um, then, little by little, we started to really unpick my voice, um, to really start working on consistency and to start focusing me where my voice lives and where my voice wants to go. Mm. And um, that's now translated into, after Marnie, um, my season is two new productions of Forza, one in Frankfurt, one at Covent Garden in London, uh, a new production of Rigoletto in Berlin. Um, then I, s uh, no, I sing Rigoletto in Vienna first, then a new pr production of Rigoletto in, in Berlin. So, um, When's the Covent Garden gig, by the way? Uh, that's going to be April time? April? I think, yeah. March, April. It might be in, um, it might be in Italy during that time. Oh, in yeah. which case, I might try and do a layover. In, yeah, come in over. If that's the case. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of worked out. Um, I now just have to nail this season. Yeah. Now we're doing Stone's oh, good. I find Stone stuff like kind of standardized. It is a touch, but this is—it's really nice. But it's a bit on the kind of grapefruit side. For is me. it? Do you want one of the other ones? Mm -mm. You sure? No, no, I'm not going to waste good beer. <laughs> well, are we back now? Are we? Yeah, we're recording now. All right, yeah, cool. Yeah. Um, You—you're absolutely right. And I remember the first time I went to Rome to sing and uh, I walked in from my hotel, which was quite far outside 
um, the centre because it was out at the um, Parco della Musica, so yeah, at this sort of big concert hall. And I walked in, and anybody who's not been to Italy, you know, people don't really look after the houses much. It's true. <laughs> there, <laughs> everything looks like it's falling down, even if it was built two years ago. Fairly much. Sorry, Selena. <laughs> but it it is true. It is true. But it's just it's part of the style of the country. It's just how things are. Yeah. You know, and everything isn't particularly beautified, but it's still one of the most beautiful countries. Yes. In the world. Yeah. Despite it, and you walk in, and you know, I as a kid, I grew up and was reading Asterix and Obelix books. And there, there's you know SPQR on, on all yeah. of the standards of the of the Roman legionaries yep. of, that are that are against Asterix and Obelix. And you look down, there's a manhole cover with SPQR on it. I thought, oh my god, <laughs> I'm in Rome. <laughs> I really am. And then you keep walking, and it just gets more and more and more and more and more and more stunning. Yeah. Until I ended up, I thought I'm, my path was supposed to take me to the Parthenon. There was no pun intended there, but to the Parthenon, which of course was, um, uh, uh, not the Parthenon, that's in, no. That's wrong. The oh, Pantheon. Pantheon. For good, the Parthenon is, is, is in Athens. So the, um, the Pantheon, which of course was a temple to all the gods, the Pantheon, there we go. If we're going to get our, our etymology correct. There we go. Um, and then, of course, was appropriated by, by the Christian church and became a Christian church. But you stand in front of it, surrounded by all of these much younger buildings which are falling to pieces. And there on the front is Marcus Agrippa me fecit. Marcus Agrippa. Agrippa, the great Roman general, built that shit 2,000 years ago. <laughs> and you walk inside and it is still as impressive as it must have been the day it was finished. Yeah. And that kind of thing just makes you go, okay, right. Now I understand what we're dealing with here. And all you have to do is go across to North Africa and then you're dealing with 6,000 years mm. of history. Mm -hmm. You know, and if you say the Romans or the Etruscans go back to kind of you know, another 500 years, yeah. then the Egyptians went back four or 5,000. Yeah. And um, there's a fascinating fact that, one of those factoid things that I came across the other day, which is that Cleopatra, um, who of course was um, the last of the, the, the Ptolemaic dynasty, right. um, Cleopatra ruled closer to us in terms of time than to the building of the Great Pyramid yeah. of Giza. Trippy to think about. Extremely <coughs> trippy to think about. Yeah. That actually we are a closer neighbor in terms of time to Cleopatra than the Great Pyramid of Giza was. And of course, we think of the two things as much closer to as being absolutely synonymous Cleopatra and the pyramids, but they're not. Um, and you touched on this about, about, about this with, with your brother, about the idea of travel. And the idea of experience, which I think is absolutely essential to our human experience mm. on this planet. Mm -hmm. The more we travel, and, it's, and I have three boys, I have three children, all boys. Um, one is 15, one's 12, and one's nine. And the very, uh, I encourage them to travel 
and I take them to put to different places as much as I possibly can. And as soon as my eldest boy is old enough, I will encourage him to travel as much as possible. Because I think well, you said it, and it, it is a, it's, I, I think it's fundamental to being a decent human being is to start understanding that we're all pretty much the same. Yeah. Wherever we are, we're all driven by the same basic needs yeah. and desires. We all try and go about it basically in a decent way. Yep. No matter our race, color, creed, religion, philosophical bents, sexual orientation, size, shape, <laughs> wh whatever it, it, it may be. You know, we're all fundamentally the same flesh and bones, all trying to do the Absolutely. same thing. And the more you travel and the more you see that, the more that the fear of the other is eroded. Absolutely, yes. You know, I spent um, uh, three years, three springs ago, um, I was doing some documentary work uh, and, and hanging out a little bit in the Middle East. And the goal behind that was to, in my personal mind, for my from my personal experience and my perspective on the world was to negate what I see in Western media coming from that area. <clears throat> and I'd always had a, a desire to go back to, um, not go back to, go to uh, what we consider to be the Holy Land and you know mm -hmm. this very volatile section of the globe. But it started for me, like you, in Rome um, in 03, I remember standing in the midst, like going from, um, going from different historical sites into different ruins, and uh, to stand in in the middle of some of these ruins that are thousands upon thousands of years old, and going, this is this is where Western civilization started. Like our our, our concepts of how we live now began here, <laughs> and it's mind-boggling. But then I was like, but there's there's still older. There's still people still go back farther than that. And you know, yeah. I, I ended up in. Um, in Jordan and and in Palestine and Israel and you know Amman the the oldest uh, the oldest digs that date back in, in Amman go back seven thousand years, mm -hmm. which standing in that area knowing that people have have been living in this as a community for over seven thousand years is just just tears my American brain to shreds, and it's fantastic. But at the same time, you know, I would when I was in I was in Birzeit in the West Bank, and I was staying with a friend of mine which was one of my big ins into the West Bank because he had an apartment there. He was studying Arabic in Birzeit, which is a, it's a community, it's a uh, uh, college town basically. Yeah. And uh, I'd walk around the corner and walk down the street and go to the ATM and get some cash. And uh, you know, everything that we hear about what life is like over there and what they think of Americans and yada, yada, it was complete bullshit. I would be walking down and people would pull up in their cars and they'd be like, are you okay? Do you know where you're going? Do you need help? And I'm like, no, I'm going to the ATM. They're like, okay, let me know if you need anything. I'm like, I have no idea who you are, nor where you're going or how yeah. to contact you, but sure, okay. Um, you know, people are like, do you want to come in and have some tea? Total strangers, and I'm just strolling down the street. I'm like, no, I'm good, thanks. And Look, you know, that kind of generosity. and, and re Religions and ideologies, um, theistic, atheistic, have been hijacked throughout the entire of human history yep. for people to exert their despotic wills over over other people that doesn't necessarily mean that the people who adhere to those ideologies or those um, religions are inherently bad people that's exactly it everybody <coughs> is I, I, I really perhaps I'm I'm intensely naive but mm. I believe that most people on this planet simply want to get on with people 
and we want to have a nice time and we want to and we want to enlighten ourselves and to be as friendly as possible and as hospitable as possible well just like you said it's what drives us as people is universal you know the, the concepts right. of, of what we want and what we need as human beings is the same you know I've, I've been south america europe asia the pacific um you know middle east all the above I, no matter what there are you know I, when i was spending time in thailand i have a friend that's a, a thai pop star and he signed a gmm grammy so i was looking at places to go hang out and it's like i had extra miles for delta that was going to expire and i was like yeah i'll go i can go and hang out in bangkok for a couple of weeks and bum around the country for a bit and uh i, I don't speak any thai like i picked up none like i can i can pick up certain uh, yeah, romance languages you know fine. And a, a, smi a smile is generally all you need. But that's exactly it. But you see that through the uh, pantomime that sometimes is required, and uh, and and a smile. That's that's it. And maybe a little a little written note that is like a location that you need to go to. Yeah. And and you get you get along fine, you know. And I I had people that constantly asked for directions, but you know, living in Manhattan, where we're all labeled as, you know, these boorish jackasses that are completely rude and stuff. I, you know, I helped a guy the other day who couldn't read the subway machine, didn't know how to get into the language he needed, and and then helped him, like we were taking the same train, and uh, I got off three stops before he did, and I was like, here you go. You know, you're gonna be three stops later. Three more stops, and that's your stop. And he's like, three, okay. And that was about all the English he spoke. But I don't, it's not just me that's doing, like I see this all the time. I see complete strangers in this city doing that regularly. You know, I've, I've been in love with this country for a long time with the United States of America in 1979 I was playing in Tunbridge Wells in Kent in in England I was playing on these rocks on the the big common area that's out in the middle of Tunbridge Wells and I got playing with this little kid from California and we became pen pals and the summer of 1980 I, I was 10 years old. I flew on my own to San Francisco. <coughs> and I was picked up from the, the, um, the airport. And I spent three and a bit weeks um, near Santa Cruz. Uh, August of, of 1980. I went to see Empire Strikes Back <laughs> in Santa Cruz. Awesome. When it was released <laughs> in 1980. After having seen it, 11 times in 10 weeks when I was seven <laughs> years old. So after having seen um, episode four, um, uh, the first one, of course, um, in 1977, I spent all my pocket money. I went to see it the first, I remember going to see that movie. Anyway, um, perhaps that's where my science fiction and kind of fancy geekery comes from, but I absolutely love that. But I was utterly obsessed with the United States as as a as a child and that continued um into my adulthood i've always seen this country as its ideals portray it as a land of fairness as a land of of great opportunity um and as a land where you know where anything is possible and immense hospitality immense generosity of spirit immense um, kindness and um, not that uh, I, I'm not endorsing him as a pregnant uh, 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 good lord as a president but um, I'm not endorsing him as, uh, uh, as a president because I have no say in American politics 
I'm, I'm not an American. Um, but when Barack Obama was, uh, was uh, elected, I was in the country and I cried. Yeah. And I, it's not my bag. It's it absolutely, it's nothing to do with me, who is the president of the United States yeah. of America. But to see the American dream being really fulfilled like that, where an African-American first-generation immigrant becomes president of the United States, I thought, it's fantastic. And perhaps I'm going to be a little bit controversial now, but I, I have to say that from an outsider's point of view, that torch of the Lady of Liberty is dimmed at the moment. Yeah. And that's what hurts me the most. Mm. Your politics are your own. Right. That's not for me to, to make any comment on. Um, everybody has to live with their democratic system. Yep. I, I wish there was something that, that did the job better, but there doesn't seem to be. And while we have this difficult um, system, we have to abide by it. And we can't gripe or moan because the electorate votes for somebody <laughs> right. who we don't agree <laughs> with. And, and I have that, I, you know, again, I'm staying firmly away from that in the United States of America, but I have that in, in my own country. With, Absolutely, yeah. With, um, with Brexit and with a government that I don't agree with, with an opposition I have, I mean, it's, it's a similar kind of thing, with a government I don't agree with, a prime minister I don't like, and, uh, and an opposition that I, that I think has no integrity whatsoever. Yeah. So it's, we all have to deal with our political process. That's not the point. From an outsider's point of view, I see America's light as this, as this aspiration, this dream, mm. and I see it dimmed at the moment, yeah. and that is hurtful to me because since I was a little kid, since I was nine years old, I've looked to this country to set the example for the world, yeah. and I don't think it does at the moment. Yeah, yeah, you're not alone, that's for sure. Oh, we shouldn't talk about what religion or politics. Religion or politics. Let's yeah, hit them yeah, exactly. All. <laughs> but you know, let's let's you know we're we're juxtaposing um, the states and and other places. Let's. Uh, but you know that that brings up a question I was going to ask you because you you've worked so extensively in Europe, being mm -hmm. a European. Um, what do you see right now as some of the big differences between? working in in the opera industry in the united states versus europe it's you know fundamentally it's artistic freedom okay that that's the fundament of it and um in europe um i had a profoundly depressing conversation with the italian um foreign minister um <laughs> to denmark it was a heavy sigh right there. It, it, it really was uh it, we were having dinner um, and he was randomly there and we spoke about about opera in Italy because uh, this state of opera in Italy is dire at the moment it really is, it's absolutely terrible um, there's, there are very few places that you can go that you know that you're actually going to get paid mm. um, state funding has dried up um, and we can argue the toss about whether state money should be in the arts or not until the cows come home. Yeah. But that's not the issue at the moment. Um, and he said, well, if we have two opera houses in the whole of Italy, that's okay. I said, really? Italy? 
Italy, the home <laughs> the of opera, birthplace. the birthplace <laughs> of the art form. That's all you can give me. And I was sort of dragged off him. <laughs> I was being, <laughs> I went, I was about to go full Rottweiler mode, uh, you know. And I t- <laughs> Audrey dragged me off him and, and said, look, eh, but let's talk about something else. Football, let's talk about football. <laughs> so, um, fundamentally, the arts in Europe are underpinned by government subsidy. Yeah. And that means that the opera houses, yes, they do have to raise money um, through private sponsorship. Yes, there is an element of it, but they have a huge freedom from their donors. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Unlike the United States of America, where without your donors, you are nothing. Right. You need your donors to make your endowment, to actually endow your house, to then work yeah and so everything and and this isn't a bad thing because some of the most incredible people i've met um in the united states of america i mean this i'll, I'll name one who i admire hugely and ziff mm. who of course writes enormous checks for uh, the metropolitan opera who is a tremendously kind passionate lady who I don't think could exist without the Met being this beacon of excellence for opera. Yeah. And so there are many others like her who are incredibly passionate donors to opera. However, it creates this sort of feedback where the donors have to be pleased. Right. Where, um, I'm, I'm not talking about Anne, absolutely, but I'm talking about some people go in there with a little bit of an agenda absolutely and if the donors aren't happy they won't come back yeah and so the cart is slightly put before the horse yeah what should be driving it is the art form the art form should be able to move forward and while i hate um uh, productions of opera that have absolutely nothing to do with the opera itself which i come across a great deal in europe um the art form must be allowed to evolve otherwise we are going to have a museum piece it's going to yes. be under glass it's going to be <coughs> opera um you know in traditional costume yeah it, yeah it's it's it can't ever be that which is why also marnie is so important yeah. and operas like it the canon can't stop we need a throughput of music Amen it that. must be a living breathing art form and um it's, it's so, so that's the fundamental difference is that is that in Europe number one look Germany has more opera houses professional opera houses Germany uh, one country has more professional opera houses than the rest of the world put together yeah something like 80 70 or 80 yeah. op- professional opera houses which is kind of incredible I, I can't see that lasting in the current economic climate however chapeau and long may it last um, Europe has way more work mm-hmm. because the arts are underpinned um, by government sponsorship, by government funding. Um, and as I say, it's a crucible of, uh, not all of it's good, but it's a, it's a crucible for, uh, for pushing the boundaries of, of, of art, pushing the, the boundaries of 
of artistic expression and pushing the boundaries, boundaries of opera. Yeah. And there's more opera performed in, in Europe. I mean, my God, I mean, it's an order of magnitude, or several orders of magnitude greater than the United States of America. That's not to say that there's n nothing good that happens here. There's nothing progressive that happens here. It's just opera especially um, seems to be rather mired in establishment money. And so becomes a reflection of what funds it. And it slightly is there to 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 please uh, to please its yeah its its donors yeah no I mean we've seen that in big houses we've seen that in <coughs> in smaller companies where I mean it, it it doesn't affect just the the B and C list houses where the donors t tend to pack a little more weight yeah it happens in the A list houses it happens in the big stuff where we we even see it trickle down to the individual singers where well I know you're sick but this donor wants you to go on because they're here in the house tonight and, you know or they're the one that specifically brought funded to bring you in kind of thing and you know right we've seen that happen all over the place but we're all we're all afflicted by the same problems now which is there is a, a much there's much less money in opera yes. than there ever was and so young singers especially I feel very sorry for and as a 48 year old baritone now I can safely say I'm no longer a young singer <laughs> Um, with tw 25 <laughs> professional seasons behind me. But when I was a kid, and um, when I was a kid, when I was coming out of, out of the Royal Academy of Music, there was money to be made. Mm -hmm. yeah. And um, it, even my, my agents, when they took me on, they paid for my demo CD. Yeah. This, this doesn't happen anymore. No, it doesn't. Not an opera. No. And in fact, agents, uh, or more unscrupulous agents I've heard, are even monetizing auditions. Yeah. So that people have to pay yeah. to go for auditions now. And even opera houses are, uh, or unscrupulous, or l perhaps less reputable people, are actually being asked, asking singers to pay to come and audition for them. Yeah. Which, for me, it seems... Uh, I've just I, well, I mean if I you don't even know how to process that if you don't have management in the states you're paying for everything I mean non-stop you're paying for <clears throat> and I, I don't mean that the agents are paying for stuff I mean that you know if you're if you're auditioning for um, an opera company a smaller opera company or a mid-sized opera company or you're you're auditioning for a young artist program or doing mm. anything, you're funding the administrative end of all of that you know you're paying anywhere between 25 and 150 bucks just for an audition spot and that doesn't even guarantee that they're going to hear you you know there's a there are companies here in town where it's like <coughs> you, you know i mentioned earlier my girlfriend's a mezzo and she um she sang she sent in an audition request last year for somebody yeah. along with the money um and never heard anything back so in order to even t accept the email they require a but fee i'm sorry but that's just that's simply immoral. Oh, it's complete and utter bullshit. But that's a big reason why I'm trying to do what I do and why there's a whole bunch of people who are kind of coming out of the woodwork to see if we can change that. Not just not just change it individually, but bring it to light and being like, mm -hmm. this is fucked up. I mean, this is truly a fucked up scenario and it's I unacceptable. Did, I did have a, a slightly depressing conversation at a dinner a little while back um, with with some 
extremely wealthy people who were telling me about um, a charity event that they put on and they said that a singer came to sing for them and only charged them $15,000 for um, their charity event. My jaw hit the floor <laughs> because I have worked many times for charity events in the UK and the whole essence for me of a charity event is that my services are part of that charitable donation. You donate your time, yeah. I, your I could, I could never, in all good conscience, ever sing for a charity event where I was being paid. Yeah. What I, I, that, that just does not compute yeah. for me. So, I don't know. I, 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 I can't judge. It's ab it's absolutely not for me to judge. I can tell you what I would do. And I can tell you how I feel about it. But um, I think all of this feeds into a very difficult situation for young singers now. Because not only are they being asked to find money before they've even found jobs, mm -hmm. even when they do find jobs now, the money is, is insultingly. It's, it's nothing. Yeah. Because by the time you've actually paid your expenses, you get basically nothing. You have to still have to pay for the gig. And it, w it wasn't always like that. And um, even at the top end of the scale, uh, you have to work a great deal more these days um, for the money that, that you earn than you would have had to do 20 or 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that means that there's, just a, there's, a, there's a pressure now to deliver. Yeah. There's a pressure to deliver young, and before you're ready. Yeah. Whereas before, you could afford to bide your time. Mm -hmm. The cost of living was less. The fees were exponentially higher. And so it meant that you could get by on much, much less work. Yeah. And you didn't have to. So you could, you could hone your craft. You could actually serve your apprenticeship. Yeah. And, and do what basically I did. I had 17 years. 17, 18 seasons singing lyric repertoire of being able to make my living a very nice living, thank you very much, for which I'm eternally grateful, um, before having to branch out into anything else, mm -hmm. rather than just going, oh God, well, you know, I've got to go for this repertoire now, otherwise that's it, I can't, <coughs> yeah. I can't pay for the gas. Yeah, it's, <sighs> I, I will say this, the nice thing that I'm seeing now and what is what is providing me the opportunity to uh, to work with young singers on <coughs> is that technology is starting to level the playing field a little bit because where before a singer had to depend on third parties to make them known mm -hmm. or give them opportunities to perform or any of that kind of stuff, um, the way that we digest the art form now is changing just like everything else has changed over the past 20 years. I don't see that as, and I mentioned this in one of my other, I think it was with Kirsten uh, Chambers with her interview on the podcast. I don't see that as negating, ever negating opera, main stage opera, because that is the art form. But we can see a heavy supplemental output to main stage opera through 
social media through um, digital media, the internet has completely overhauled the game, mm-hmm. um, which at least gives singers <clears throat> the chance to be known um, and therefore give them slightly a slightly higher edge. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's networking at a different level. It's networking in a very different way um, because networking one-on-one, face-to-face is a very, very important thing to this art form, always has been. I think it is in business in general, but as an artist, you can put yourself out there as an artist and at least be visible and have things to reference that you've created, that you've, you've established on your own that um, don't require third-party funding or anything yeah. like that, you know? And that's, that's nice. I mean, opera is about eight to 15 years behind the rest of the world technologically. I mean, that's, it's, it's about, you know, because before... Well, <laughs> in, in that case, <laughs> opera and I are in good company. <laughs> No, it's it, it's an interesting point though because I, you know, I have three sons as I've said, and all of whom are extremely um, technologically proficient, and it's very Almost easy. Almost disturbingly. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. But it's very easy for for parents and for people of my age to kind of just start digging their heels in and going, oh well, it wasn't like that in my day, and oh. Oh, I don't know what all of this... And the thing is, I, I, I don't particularly yeah. know what it's all about. Yeah. <laughs> you know me, Daniel. I have no website. I, my Instagram feed gets, gets love like once a month. Um, I tweet very occasionally. But I sort of really don't know what I'm doing and I don't know what it's for. But um, that lack of fear thing yeah. that we were saying, that um, ability... Uh, that you earn by engaging with other people. Yes. Um, I'm not afraid of not knowing about that. Mm-hmm. And I'm also not, I, I don't immediately think that because I don't understand it, it's a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything evolves. It has to. Everything does. And we all have to be, at some point, poo sticks, you know. The, that little game that Pooh and Piglet used to play where they were throw, go to one side of the bridge, up the upstream side of the bridge and throw two sticks off and see who's stick. Racing down the, ra- down the creek. Exactly, yeah. races down the creek. That's us. We're the sticks on the creek. You yeah. know, we believe we have a little bit of say in where we go, which we do, you know, a bit pickle Rick. We can uh, <laughs> stick our tongue out and roll ourselves over. But um, so a little bit of Rick and Morty um, <laughs> reference there. Another one of life's great artistic pursuits. But um, but basically, we're sticks in the stream, and you just got to kind of lie back and watch the the sky as it yeah. unfolds. Yeah. And you also have to let things become something that you're not familiar with. Yeah. Because that is the nature of life, and the more relaxed we can be with that the more confident that we can be in ourselves, the more comfortable we can be with ourselves, Mm -hmm. the more we can allow life to just unfold as it is. And we don't then feel we need to control what happens around us so much Mm. or other people or other people's opinions. And we don't feel quite so threatened. So, um, absolutely, opera must be part of that sort of artistic evolution it must take its place and it can't dig its heels in and it can't say 
no I don't want it to be that it used to be that in when I remember <laughs> joining it 25 <laughs> years ago so and I, I believe I played my part in that I've always felt that um, my job as an opera singer was to be artistically believable yes as well as being as good a singer as I could possibly be and so I've devoted myself a great deal to acting because I thought that was often lacking in opera. Still is. It, 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 <laughs> it is to a certain extent, but, um, you know, I can only take care of my end of that. Exactly. No, I mean, you, you And all I try to do is, as I have always done my entire career, is just try and improve. It's to try and be better, to try and understand it more. If I've got, you know, we were talking about your your base of of, of of who listens to you. Yeah. And if there are a lot of young singers out there listening to this, um, there is only one thing that will get you through a career in, in music, which is to love it more than you love anything else. And if you don't, you will fall by the wayside mm. because at some point you will get bored and tired and it will piss you off because I have an enviable career. I am so grateful for it. Uh, I Last year I made 100 flights. Damn. Um, <clears throat> I work incredibly hard. I learn huge amounts of music and the only thing that keeps you going through that is being as in love with it as the day you started yeah and in fact i get more in love with it the more i do it because if you're chasing glory and fame and money nah, no yeah it's it, it's you, you you're on a hiding to nothing you really are. It's a it's a profession. You know, I think that's readable too. I think that the people that are out there to be something other than the best artist they can be, it, it reads to the viewer. Um, it you can tell when yeah they're trying a little hard. This is not for them. This is to be something. Well, I, it's it's a creed I try to live by. Artistic honesty is exactly where it's at. Yeah. Um, if you if you chase what you feel an audience wants to hear if you chase what an interviewer you feel an interviewer wants from you Mm -hmm. if you chase uh, a a tagline if you force your image yeah you can sustain it for a little while but you know you're you're not being honest yeah and you diminish yourself in the process yeah um, it's the same in relationships. If anybody wants some relationship advice <laughs> out there, no, but it, I'm I'm serious. As somebody who really knows about all of that, um, there is only one way. There, and and that's nail your colours to the mast. Say who you are, and do it honestly, without fear of where that may get you, either good or bad. Yes, you just take the consequence of 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 who you are and then you don't have to lie to anybody you don't have to apologize to anybody you don't have if you fail you're happy if you succeed you're happy 
you don't have to try and keep up a facade. You don't have to. No. Because that's a whole other level of work on top of being a professional. Oh, my God. That's, uh, that's why, Daniel, I don't have a, partic <laughs> a, a particularly high um, social media profile and I don't have a website. Because I look at all of that stuff. And, and, I mean, I know you're into it. And I know it's important these days. And perhaps I am one of the, the last dinosaurs who can get away with, without having yeah. that kind of yeah. um, social media profile. But every time I post something, I think, why did I do that? I don't really know. <laughs> and so, you know, each subsequent post leads to a, a larger and larger interval until the next one. Yeah. And then I have these moments where I think, I should have a social media profile. And I think, but why should I have a social media? I don't know. You know it's funny because I, I, um, I use you to teach, by the way. <laughs> So when Good I, luck there. When I, when I teach mm -hmm. at, at Young Artist Programs, uh, I, I, when, we do, when we do a necessary media day, yeah. um, I go through all the, the levels of the things that a young singer needs. Uh, that a, a singer basically, a singer under 40 right now needs these following things. And I'm not going to entirely give them all away right now. But no, no, no things, exactly, exactly. That's, <laughs> that's, your, that's your job. That's my you? job. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but one of the things I discuss is, is websites and, and you know what is what is needed on a website and I get my information from um, you know I send out I send out questionnaires to um, directors and casting directors and, and management or agents mm. and I say you know a very large percent of, percentage of my uh, clients are opera singers what are you looking for them for this year and it, it's usually like a, a five or seven question email that they get and I, I get responses usually from about half of them and these are it, it's Europe and the United States um, I'm, I'm lucky enough to have enough contacts that I can get legitimate information and then can pass it on to my clients. And um, for those who are in young artist programs that I end up teaching in, uh, so I did a, a juxtaposition of a bunch of different, um, this summer when I was at Taos, I did a whole bunch of, uh, I brought up a bunch of websites together. And I was like, this is what I like about certain websites. These people are younger and don't have a whole lot of content. These people are older and have a shit ton of content. This is kind of everything in between. I pulled up some people that you know that are regional that have some stuff, and I brought up some of the um, you know some of the Lindemann people like Rehab and uh, and Heising Park and yeah. um, uh, Adam Plachetka. I pulled up, I was yeah you know I, I used him and uh, and then I, I pulled up your site, which isn't your site. It's your age, it, It's your artist site via your management. Yeah, and uh, and I was like, but there's always the exception to the rule. I said, the exception to the rule here comes in because he's been around long enough that he preceded the necessary media that I'm teaching. You're making me feel old now. Yeah, you're, you're, <laughs> you're not. <laughs> and yet you are. <laughs> no, I'm like that, that piece just... of granite in the middle of the <laughs> desert. Those rocks that roll, you know, all on their Steadily own. Steadily onward. Uh, no, you, you, you're at that cusp of, um, you know, a social media presence would be fun if you, if you did what you wanted to do with it, but it isn't necessary for your career because you no. established your career in a time period where it wasn't quite necessary. And, and as a professional, I'm 37. I'm also on that edge of, I did a lot of things and learned marketing and media uh, and was in the contemporary music world and the opera industry all before social media was really big, a big thing. Yeah. Um, and then I saw what it was doing with business because I was doing brand experience marketing for small businesses. And then I looked at opera singers and I'm like, opera singers 
are a business. Yeah, but of course. nobody's looking at them. At least in the states, no. we have this major issue of forgetting that they're a business. And I was like, all this stuff that's happened over the last ten years. This is this is the great thing about opera being eight to fifteen years behind everybody else. We can see what worked for small business, and incorporate it into the opera world, and be like, we know this works, guys. You Let's know, just take this and do it over here. It it's fantastic you're doing this because. And this is really isn't a plug. Everyone's going to think, oh, he got him on because this is this is the moment where where we have the infomercial. You can get a thousand dollar value for, but no, it's absolutely not. Uh, I have been. That's right. You're only getting paid in beer. Yeah, exactly. It's true. Um, but I really feel that uh, that it must be treated as a business. I often think about mm, it mm. as a business, independent of my own sort of desperate, hopeless love affair with it all, because um, it all is ultimately hopeless, let's face it. We will never ever achieve what we all uh, set ourselves out to achieve. All we can hope is to, is to be really good singers, mm. is to be really good artists, is to be honest. And honestly, I would, if, if I could take one or two things away from my career which is knowing that i had given my heart and soul to opera mm. or 10 million pounds i'd take the first one yeah and i know it it, it everybody say oh that's because you earn lots of money and it's really easy i earn a very good living but the thing that keeps me going is knowing that i've done a really great job and the constant striving to do better. Yeah. And the love and the joy that I get working with Audrey on these new roles. And it's, it's awesome. And we often talk, Audrey and, and, and me, we, we, we talk about all, of, all, we, all I require, all we require is a cabin in the mountains, two bikes, a piano, mm. enough space for my kids. Yeah. And the rest of it, I don't give a fuck. Mm. <laughs> I, I really don't. Yeah. I've been lucky enough to travel the world in some of the most luxurious ways possible to drink. I'm a great wine fan. I've drunk with my friends who are in the wine business some of the most, I mean, really, some of the most legendary wines mm. on the planet. And I would gladly give them all up. Yeah. I, I, I if somebody told me today you'll you'll never drink Aubryon 89 again you'll never drink um, Latour 90 you'll never drink I don't know whatever any any great wine again tomorrow I would say well that's good because I've done it it's fine yeah you know I don't really mind anymore yeah and I've gone far enough down the road that I've experienced just some incredible things and now I know what's important to me mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and what's really important to me is my girl my boys and my music yeah and the bikes and the bikes and don't forget the bikes and the bikes that's just a, just a recent mm -hmm. one but you know you, you've had a phenomenal career but it's not like you sit on your ass and don't do anything you have busted no. your ass to make that happen and it's, yeah. it's that career has come from your adoration of the art form and, and those things that you just listed, that those are the top of your list is why 
the career has come about the way it has is because you wanted to spend that much time working on music, <laughs> that much time learning, performing, traveling, right. because of the adoration, not because you were chasing a paycheck. No. Although, <laughs> you know, there was that logistical necessity of actually making all the, the, bills. <laughs> all, the all the digits and zeros adding up at the end of the, you know, at, at, at the end of the... Um, at the end of the month, I, you know, of course, everything needs to add up. But um, no, I was, I, I was driven because it was cool. Yeah. Because it was fantastic. Because the music is amazing. And, and also, I was reminded by a comment that you made, um, or, or actually a, a subject that we were talking about before, about funding for the arts. Yeah. And how one justifies funding for the arts and I was reading a book apropos of our conversation earlier as well about um, about history about the differences between people the similarities between people and there's a wonderful book which I would recommend everybody to read and I get no nothing from the sale of it, <coughs> it wasn't written by me it was published by the British Museum in um, in London, and the British Museum is a store of antiquities and basically human life. And they curated a fantastic book, and I forget the author now, but was absolutely genius thing. And it's called "The History of the World in a Hundred Objects." They couldn't do it through writing, because obviously written history is written human history is. Um, very selective. It's editorialized. Um, well, yeah, but also, um, not every major civilization had a great written history. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, it starts. Um, the book starts with a stone axe from about two million years ago, somewhere in the Rift Valley, mm -hmm. and ends with the very first credit card. There we <laughs> go. Wow. Says it all. That's heavy right there. Says it all, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. So, um, these are artifacts which are, which uh, from modern human history, so say we go one to two million years back to the present day, which are symbolic of um, fundamental turns. Some of them are things like um, the first uh, printed banknote. Um, which was from China, if I remember, um, particularly significant um, artifacts from, from different societies and, and different cultures. Another, another one of them, I can't remember exactly what the artifact was, was um, really fascinating, was from the Safavid Empire, uh, which was sort of pre-Persian uh, and spanned that area and they built in Isfahan in modern Ir Iran mm -hmm. now um, the very first Christian cathedral outside of Christendom oh. and they built it for the Armenian Christians and the traders, the Caucasian Christians to come down and they would feel comfortable trading with the Muslim Isfahan Empire Wow! see it's expediency a little bit of thought, a little bit of kindness, uh -huh. a little bit of tolerance. It's amazing how far that goes. Yeah. However, I'm, I digress. The first two, two items are, are stone axes separated by about a million years. 
one stone axe is slightly better than the previous <laughs> stone axe. That was a million years. Then the third item is a representation of two um, reindeer. Uh, one definitely fe uh, male with antlers, another which is definitely female, carved from a piece of reindeer horn, and they're both swimming across the stream. And it's dated, I can't remember the exact date, but it's somewhere around 20, 30,000 years ago. And most anthropologists um, agree there was this sort of cognitive shift mm. that happened. For a, a lot of time, we didn't really think about much. Mm. There was quite a lot of animalistic thought that went on. And then all of a sudden, we get a... a, a a piece of art like this because that's what it is it's art as soon as there was a, a little bit of time to sit down and think about things what was the first thing that this person did as they sat down they made a representation of the world around them they tried to make sense of the things that were important to them they looked at the reindeer herds that they were probably following at that stage and they were important to them so they examined them and they knew them and they carved them into this piece of reindeer antler and they had a piece of art and so when anybody says to me art is about privilege it's absolutely not and this is fundamental to art art is about making sense of being a human being mm. it's about making an external representation of what it means to you mm -hmm. to be a human being however that may um, however that may manifest itself whether it be in a piece of reindeer antler my god there's some noise going on outside now whether it may, would be a piece of, of reindeer antler whether it's a painting whether it's a sculpture whether it's a work of music whether it's a piece of poetry yeah it, it doesn't matter it's all the same thing and there's no privilege to that yeah it's not about privilege and all of the great operatic stories all of the the music that I sing are all about people trying to tell human stories so that we as human beings can learn from them and the music only serves to underline all of those emotional twists and turns that we take ourselves through the visual arts that, that, that go into the design of opera only go to enhance our experience and the acting the this dramatic art that we also engage in again come together in this holy triumvirate of, 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 of artistic experience which makes opera at its best absolutely I think the most evocative art form yeah I'm going to call it there <laughs> that was fantastic uh, thanks for so much for coming in such a pleasure hanging out and pleasure Look, hey, sharing your wisdom I and your beer. thoughts with, yeah you did. <laughs> <laughs> We still got to plan a, uh, a motorcycle trip one of these days. Definitely. We'll make that actually happen. Definitely. Uh, shame Lake George didn't work out, but you know. Well, yeah, yeah. There will be more times. When are you back in the States? After uh, Marnie? What's, what's next after Marnie? You're, you're going, you got the, the stuff that you just rattled off earlier. Um, straight away, I go to San Francisco where I give a recital in okay. San Francisco and then in Napa. Um, not a bad place for a recital. No, no, not so bad. And there's going to be a lot of wine drinking that goes on there. Then um, 
From there, I do a little European recital tour, sadly not with Audrey, but with some other very, very good people. Then I'm in Frankfurt for um, Forza, mm. straight mm -hmm. from Frankfurt to London for Forza, straight from London to Vienna for Rigoletto, straight from Vienna to Berlin for more Rigoletto <laughs> until the end of the season. And then um, I would love to tell you where I am but I can't because they haven't announced their summer yet. That's <coughs> all right then. God, you work seriously more than anybody else I know. That's, I mean, it's, it's a, I do. It's That's what my manager tells me to. That's just a good thing. For more information about today's guest, visit our website at operabizpodcast.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show with new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. You can find me directly on Instagram at thebeardandlens. And the podcast Instagram is at Opera Biz. Thanks for listening to the Opera Biz podcast.